all my power's gone. I've, it was one of the things that got me out of bed every day. I had the power to let you sit or stand. It's gone. It's like Oz. Just a, a, oh, well. Deuteronomy chapter 6 tonight. While we're turning there, Labor Day water baptism and uh, kind of picnic and fellowship day tomorrow. So be aware of that. If you haven't been water baptized as a Christian, you need to do that. And we'll be doing that tomorrow. If you're bringing the kiddos out tomorrow, we'll have a lot of water things going on in addition to a lot of bunch of regular things. And so bring, bring something they can get wet and play around in and then put something dry on them a little bit later. Everything starts at about 11 o'clock tomorrow. Water baptism starts at noon. And there's a flyer on the fellowship hall you can pick up later for uh, information. Free, you know, lunch and just a great day. So uh, come on out. Okay. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we, we find ourselves picking Moses up really in the early stages of his uh, second of five sermons that he preached to the children of Israel immediately prior to them going in and doing the thing that they dreamed about, and that was the conquest of uh, the promised land beginning in Jericho. And the theme of all five of these sermons, as we've seen, is the theme of obedience, and so we pick him up kind of in mid thought, but in a good place to pick him up. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, so immediately we realize all right, he's got this is the obedience theme, he's staying with it. A commandment is an obedience word, isn't it? Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has suggested, no, has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. So Moses is kind of uh, speaking to them and saying, Now listen, I'm not going to give you five sermons in a row just so you can hear sermons or just obey it on this side of, of the Jer- uh, Jordan River, but I'm teaching you these things because you need them for your life today, the things that you're facing, but I'm teaching you these things because you're going to need to obey them Uh, when you get into the nitty-gritty of some real battles and real struggles and the nitty-gritty and even the blessings of life uh, in the promised land, so that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. So he talks about this fact that they're going to possess the land would have been a great encouragement to them. I, I like it when somebody talks about the promises of God in our lives in kind of a past tense way. It's just assuming that they're going to happen in our lives because God has said that. And uh, this is the way he looks at it. He's talking to them. He's nurturing their faith. You're going to go into that land. And when you get in there, make sure that you obey God when you get there or you won't be there long. That you may fear the Lord your God and keep all of his statutes, statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson. So everyone was to obey from the senior citizen all the way down uh, to the whippersnapper. Uh, Nobody was to get an out from obeying the word of God all the days of your life, young and old again, that your days may be prolonged. And therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that, and here's the reason behind uh, God telling us to obey his word, the reason behind his commandments, so that you can have the most miserable life of all men on planet earth. Now, some people view the Christian life, though, a lot of them do. Oh, no, what do you guys do for fun? Uh, well, basically, stay out of the bondage of sin and fellowship. You know, I mean, there's a lot. 
There's God, you know, God's, uh, he's, uh, he can keep you busy about some pretty good things. But here's the reason that it may be well with you. I don't think any of us can say, boy, you know, I, I really enjoy obeying God, but you know that one commandment always turns out rotten for me. You never say that about any of his commandments. Every one of them is just right. That it may be well with you, and that, that's a reason word, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this land that they're going into, God describes it as flowing with milk and honey. Now today, you know, we've got candy bars and chocolate milkshakes and we've got sweets like crazy and rich foods like crazy as much as you wanna, we want to kill ourselves with just about. But in those days, to have milk, wow, that was a luxury. And, and to have honey to sweeten something, whoo, not every place had, Saudi Arabia didn't have honey. And, and so God's saying, I'm bringing you into a, a very, very blessed place. And, and what they're going to need in order to possess it and then hold on to it is obedience. And there, then there in verse 4, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And this passage here, this verse 4, is uh, what is referred to, it's the first verse of what is referred to as the Jewish uh, Shema. And today, the, uh, uh, an observant Jew will pray verse 4 uh, down through uh, verse 9 and then some verses in Deuteronomy and, and they'll quote some other things. Uh, every morning and every evening, and it's a prayer known as the great Shema that they pray to the Lord. And the prayer is called Shema after the first uh, the, after the Hebrew word that is the first word in the Hebrew of, of verse 4, and that is the word here. Now, they didn't always, the Jews have not always uh, prayed this prayer known as the Shema to God, but at the time they left the Babylonian captivity and they came back into the land to rebuild the temple, what is known as the second temple, the religious leaders looked at kind of, you know, the disarray of things and, uh, and the great task that was lying before them. And they decided at that point in time in Jewish history that these verses were to be prayed by every observant Jew in the morning and in the evening. And they probably chose to do that on the basis of uh, verse 7 there where it talks about at the end of it when you lie down and when you rise up. So they probably looked at it, interpreted it and said this is something we need to be saying to God every morning and, and every evening. And, and this uh, great Shema in uh, the start of it here in verse 4 is basically declaring that there's only one true God uh, and that one true God is the Lord, the God of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and there is no other God but He. And so they're heading into a land that's filled with idols. They're, fi they're going to 
dispossessed uh, people from the land that are worshiping just anything and everything. And uh, so God reminds them here through Moses that they didn't have anything to fear from all of these uh, false gods because there's only one true God and the, the, uh, the Jews, the children of Israel, uh, were worshiping him, happened to be in personal relationship with him. And uh, so it was uh, in, in those days from the second temple period on, even today, as, as it's prayed morning and evening, it's generally considered to be a, a, a person's commitment to keeping the word of God, uh, a commitment that's made in the morning and a commitment that is made in the evening. It's e- interesting that Jesus actually affirmed uh, the Shema. There was a, some scribes, Mark chapter 12 for you note takers, some scribes came to him and they asked him one day saying, what is the first commandment of all, the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, uh, answered him and said, the first of all the commandments is, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he headed into set, quoting verse uh, um, 5 here, Jesus said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like unto it. You shall love uh, your neighbor as yourself, and there are no other commandments greater than these two. It is very interesting to me that when Jesus takes and quotes the Shema, the beginning of the Shema, as being the single greatest commandment found in the Law and the Prophets in the Old Testament, he did not view that great commandment as a threat to his claim to deity, to his claim that he was the Son of God and that he was uh, divine, God in human flesh. He didn't view that Shema verse 4 as, as a threat to the teaching of the Trinity or the triunity in the Bible. The Bible teaches, and, and there's a reason for what I'm about to get into right now, so bear with me a little bit if it gets a little technical for one or two of you here tonight. But the Bible teaches that there is only one God. And as clearly, and just as clearly as the Bible teaches that there's one God, the Bible ascribes deity to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So ascribes deity to three persons all the way through the Bible. And thus you have what is known uh, in, in the Bible as the Trinity of God, that there's one God manifested in three persons. It's interesting to notice in regarding uh, the Shema here that it actually supports the teaching of the triunity of God. For instance, in verse 4, the Hebrew word that is used for God is the word Elohim. And it's fascinating because in the Hebrew, the name for God in the singular is El. Elohim is a plural name for God. So when you want to make something plural in the Hebrew, you add I am to it. And, and so Elohim speaks of the fact that God is one and yet plural at the same time. It's also very significant, I think, that although the name Elohim is in the plural form continually in the Old Testament, it is constantly being accompanied by verbs and adjectives in the singular in the Bible. And so what it's doing is it's reinforcing two great truths about God which seem to be contradictory, but they're not, and that is that God is one and yet plural. 
It's also fascinating there in verse 4 to note that the Hebrew word that's used for one is a very interesting one. It's the Hebrew word echad. And the word echad means one, but it speaks of a compound unity. There is another Hebrew word that God could have used for one, and it is the word yachid. And that means an absolute one, an indivisible uh, one. And if God had used yachid here in verse 4 instead of echad, there'd be no talk of the triunity in the Bible. There'd be no talk of the Trinity in the Bible. We would reject Jesus' claims to be divine, that there is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in the great Shema even here, he doesn't use the word Yahid. He uses the word Echad, supporting the doctrine of the triunity of God. Now you take and you couple this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1-1 where Elohim is used for God there, God in a plural form. But then in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and verse 27 concerning the creation of man, God records that God declared, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And, and so God declared clearly, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God's having a conversation with somebody. And whoever he's having a conversation with, uh, they're going to create man in, in the image of these people that are talking. And, and, and so you, and it, what it does is it raises the question of who then is, is talking in this, this conversation? Who is this us? Who is this our hour that God is talking to? And almost all Jewish literature where, uh, you know, uh, Jews are trying to, you know, deal with that particular passage and what's going on here because it does support the idea of the triunity of God, the, the teaching of the Trinity uh, that Christians believe in. So they look at it and they view it as kind of an enemy to their position, so they wrestle with it. And virtually everything I've ever read of a Jewish interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, they say God was having a discussion with the angels. And, and so what God did is he created, he, he was saying to the angels, let us make man in our image to the angels. The problem is, is you just go right on to the next verse. In verse 27, and God himself declares, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. Three times, just so nobody would miss it, he says, we're going to create man in our image, and the persons that are involved in this creation of man in our image, this is God that's doing it. Man has been created in, in the image uh, of, of God. And, and so here we are, not created in the image of God and the image of, of angels. Now, why don't we go on and on about this? And it's a little bit of a kind of an apologetics, really, tonight, because... The religious leaders of Jesus' day, but not just the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the average Jewish person uh, that is uh, even remotely kind of uh, observant concerning uh, their uh, Judaism, rejects Jesus as the Messiah 
not based upon his teaching, uh, per se, not based upon his miracles, not based upon his, you know, being a true historical figure in human history. They reject him over his claims to be the Son of God, to be divine, to be a part of the Godhead. And, and so here is, is they reject him for that, but we, it's so important to see in the Old Testament, even in the law, Genesis 1, all the way uh, through there to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the evidence for Jesus' claim to be God the Son, that there is one God, but there are three persons that make up that Godhead that is right here in the Old Testament. And, and so, all the way back in Genesis 1-1, through to here and, and beyond, God had started to lay a foundation in the Old Testament Scriptures for, and, and to, to uh, prepare us for a revelation He knew that was coming, and that is that Jesus would come on the scene and declare Himself, rightfully so, to be the Son of God. And this also goes for Islam. The uh, average Muslim uh, person that knows anything about their Quran uh, will recognize Jesus as... He is a recognized teacher uh, in, uh, in Islam. But they absolutely reject his claim to be the Son of God and his claim uh, to be divine. And yet, uh, of course, Judaism and then, of course, Islam both claim Old Testament roots... Uh, for their belief system and their rejection of Jesus. But it's very fascinating to look at these passages and, and to realize that God has laid a foundation uh, for the triunity uh, and the trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all the way through the Old Testament. Now he calls us, he said, here's the, the beginning of the great Shema. Love, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then here... In light of who he is and uniquely who he is, you shall love the Lord your God with all, and all is a big word, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, we're to love, because our God is who he is, he's deserving of us loving him with everything we have. Use our physical strength, to use our minds, to use our emotions, uh, to use everything we have in expression of our love and our devotion to him. And, the, and when he talks here, he talks about the heart, and the heart speaks about the emotional seed of man. When he talks about the soul, that's talking about the mind, it's talking about the intellect and the will, we're to worship God with that, and then with all of our strength. All those things are redirected toward the Lord. Sometimes it's interesting to sit with Christians during uh, the worship of the Lord in song. And sometimes you sit and, and people are, uh, during that part, not very many, but a few of them, they just kind of twiddle their thumbs all the way through it. Never move their mouth week after week after week for months, for years. Never peep out of their mouth and worship to the Lord. And, and maybe what's true about that kind of a person is that they are so satisfied in their worship and their connection with God on the basis of what they know. I mean, they worship Him so richly in the realm of the mind, in the realm of the will, that, that everything else is dwarfed in comparison. But I think it's important to, to be challenged related to this, to not be one-dimensional that way. God's to be worshipped with everything that we have, 
even our emotions, however um, undeveloped they might be, however non-existent they might be. Wives, do not poke your husband in the rib cage. But it's all there to worship. And then you got other people, you know, and I mean, the, the, the worship starts in song, and I mean, they're just with it, and, and just, they got the whole row. You can feel, who's rocking in this row, man? Come on. It's, it's, you're disturbing my academic love for God. You know, everything. We've got a wild person in the row. And then sometimes that person, certainly not uh, uh, even remotely all the time, you look, and you start to teach the Word, you got them for 30 seconds. You better say something good about God in 30 seconds because they're gone. <laughs> they're all hard toward God. They don't have any kind of thing happening between them and the, the realm of the mind and going deep in the worship of the Lord that way. And I think it's important for us. Jesus took and He added this. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we have the Holy Spirit. So Jesus takes this, and when he quotes this, he talks about loving God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. So he brings the spiritual dimension, who we are by the Holy Spirit, into it also. But I think it's good for us to know. they got all these things, and all of them are be used just to bring pleasure to God and to love Him. He's given us so many ways to love Him. And these, beginning in verse 6, these words which I command you, uh, you, you today shall be in your heart. And so what the Lord does now, this place, verses 6 through 9, is He starts to talk about the, the very significant place that we're to give the Word of God in each of our lives. And when He says, and these words, the sermon, the Word of God, the things He's teaching to them, which I command you today shall be in your heart. So He's going to talk about the place that the Word of God is to have in our homes and all kinds of different things here in just a moment. But he begins, the Word of God will never have a significant place in our homes, in our marriages, in our anywhere, if it doesn't first have a significant place in us. And, and so that's where he begins. You know, the Bible teaches for us as, as Christians, and I don't want to pick on the body of Christ right now, I don't want to pick on it ever, really, but there's a pretty significant dumbing down going on in the body of Christ right now in terms of just pure illiteracy related to knowing what this book has to say. And uh, it just shouldn't, shouldn't be in place. But the Bible teaches that for the, any old Christian, just like me, just any old brand X Christian, the Bible is to be the single greatest influence in our lives. Every single day. It is to be more influential than the Medesta V. It is to be more influential than Rush Limbaugh. It is to be more influential than Fox News or CNN, more influential than any instructor in high school or in junior college or in university level. It is to be the single most influential thing in my life. It is to dominate my thinking. It is to dominate how I process life, how I view life. I like what Jesus said in all of this. He said in John chapter 15, he said, and I'm not picking on anybody that I just mentioned to be a greater influence. I'm not saying any of those, those people are bad. But Jesus said in, in verse 15, uh, John chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be given to you. 
And he's talking about giving the Word of God. So this is Jesus saying the same thing and even a greater thing in the New Testament that Moses is saying here. He said, you need to give the Word of God a place where it abides in you. And the word abide is a very, very interesting one in the Greek. It means to settle down and make itself at home. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is I remember one of the first sermons I heard as a brand new Christian, somebody was talking about abiding and the Word of God being given this place. It was like uh, fireworks went off in my mind, almost as great as those Chinese can do with the Olympics. Amazing. Come on. Ridiculous. Poor British got to follow that. Whew. I'm glad they got it, not us. Four years. Of course the Lord's coming back. Anyway, stop distracting me. But that word abide means to settle down and make yourself at home. And the picture is kind of like, we're at the end of summer here, so you're going to have to use a little imagination. But the picture is like on a, a very, very cold, stormy, wintry night in England. And you're inside of this great house on this estate. And, and, in, and you go into the library and it's all paneled beautifully in wood. And there's a beautiful fire going on in that library. And you sit down in one of those great overstuffed chairs and you just settle down and make yourself at home there. God says, I want you to give the Word of God. Jesus said, I want you to give the Word of God that kind of place in my life. So it's not running out of the room every time you bring something wrong into your life. Give it that, that kind of a deep place, abiding place in your life. And, and he said, that's the place that that's, has, has the blessing. That's the place where uh, it, then the Word of God is able to do what God knows the Word of God needs to do in, in each of our lives. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I was... Um, and uh, you know, started listening to the Word of God and all, and, and I was constantly in the Word in my spare time, and uh, listening to seven Bible study types a day most days, and, and uh, now even today, I'm always downloading teachings. I've always, if you see me in a gym or you see me someplace, and all the, I've, I've got a Bible study tape going on somewhere about something, because I need the Word of God to have that kind of a place in my life. And, and we all do. And I want it just to really, really be important for us to understand that, that, and to really be a, a challenge that the Word of God would be the single most influential uh, thing in my life and then to watch the life that, that unfolds. Now notice the place that the Word of God is to have in our homes. He said, you shall teach them, these commandments, diligently to your children. And, and so this is talking about, in those days, I mean, they didn't have, like, send the kids off to school and that kind of thing. You taught your children in your home. So he said, your responsibility now, as parents in this home, you're to teach these children formally, teach them these words. Just like we're supposed to do that, the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And you fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And so the faith of our children, for any spiritual Christian, that's the most important thing to us in the whole wide world. Not, not money, not power, not what people think of us or they don't think of us or anything like that. If our children are walking with the Lord, we consider ourselves to be rich. That's the great concern of our life is that they'll, they'll walk with the Lord. Now, 
This, I think, as Jesus or as Moses talks about this and, and talks immediately, first of all, make sure that the Word of God has that kind of a place in my and in our individual lives. Then he moves right to the children. There's that recognition, I think, that the uh, work of God and the plan of God through His people always just one generation away from extinction. And, and I know that the sovereignty of God works in that way, but, but you understand what I'm saying. One time I said that, and a guy caught me at the back door, and, and, it, you know, it, because it is true, and I think it's Spurgeon that said it, you know, that the, the, the body of Christ, because it passes from generation to generation, just one generation away from extinction. And in a practical sense, it's very, very true. And, and so, but we know God's sovereignty is in there, and it's not going to happen. There's always going to, they're going to be a witness all the way to the end. But I mean, if I've got to qualify everything I say, I'm just going to, we'll be here for hours and hours. Well, he caught me at the back door, and he said, he said, uh, he said you know, the, the sovereignty of God you know, determines, in essence, he said, the sovereignty of God determines that, that you know, no generation is, is going to, it's not going to skip a complete generation and all. And, and then he coached me in no uncertain terms. So he said, don't say that anymore. Oh, I hadn't felt those feelings in a long time. <laughs> I looked for my bodyguard to see if I could hand him over to Tony. So I looked at him and I said, don't come here and tell me what to say. I had to repent of that afterwards, but I want to be the hero of the story. <laughs> don't come here and tell me what to say. You want to make suggestions, I'm open to that. Don't come and, and, and do that. But there is truth to it. I remember somebody uh, gave me a book years ago, and uh, it was on the whole thing with England. And as you may are probably well aware, England is very, very post-Christian, and uh, there are more mosques. I mean, they're just the, is, Islam is just taking over the churches and converting them to mosques. It's a it's a real change that's occurring over there. And and the idea is is most people look and say, well, you know, that kind of a transition in a country or whatever, that happens over, you know, a hundred years, two hundred years. It's just a very slow, incremental change that occurs. This man wrote his book, and the point that he was making is not necessarily so. His contention was that England became post-Christian in one generation. That it was the generation, who the, the World War II generation, for whatever reason... They did not pass the, the Christian heritage onto that next generation, and all you had to do is just skip one, and now you have the spiritual England that you have today. So the importance of passing this on to our children. I like that word diligently that's used there. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Every one of you that works in the children's ministry knows that it requires diligence to teach a child anything. So it requires diligence. So it doesn't just, uh, just happen. So why do we need to do it diligently? It requires effort. It requires discipline. It requires may, way more discipline of us than it will ever demand uh, of, of them. And, and, and the reason is, is because sin and rebellion and wickedness, all of those things just move effortlessly from one generation to the other. Now, one of you had to teach your, your little kiddo how to rebel or how to be sinful, or how to be disobedient. Boom, that just moves with the atom nature from one generation to the other. No effort required. But what does require effort in this fallen world is to pass on godliness, righteousness from one generation to the next. 
And, uh, and if any generation or congregation or individual parent loses uh, among God's people, falls asleep regarding this, then the next generation can drift away from these things. And then uh, with the, the stream of, of the fallen world that's all around us and then be lost. I uh, read a quote that was it's just fabulous in this, in this vein. Someone asked Howard Hughes uh, very late in his life, uh, why he ended up being a uh, long-nailed recluse in a sealed hotel room. <laughs> That's how he ended up. I mean, nails like a claws, like a bird, sealed up in a hotel room. That's as big as his world was. And somebody asked him, how, you, know, it, it, you know, why he ended up in that kind of a condition. And, and it's reported that he, in, in the words of the person writing it, he croaked with perfect candor. I just sort of drifted into it. <laughs> just sort of drifted into it. And that's why we can't allow our children or allow ourselves to just drift with whatever's going on in our own noggins, in our own hearts, or to drift in, in the way that the world is, wants to uh, take us and to take our children. We've got to resist uh, that current of the world. Now, I want to also say before I leave this, that the primary, this training of children in the things of the Lord is primarily the responsibility of the family. Here's why we've got to be careful about that. For instance, in, in public education, uh, elementary and uh, through high school, K, K through, through 12, in the United States of America, one of the great problems that they're facing there is that the family unit is throwing their responsible, responsibility on the school system. They're asking the schools to be involved in the raising of their children in ways that parents used to all take care of all that kind of thing and, and then the schools could focus on what they were focusing on. And I know that there's sections of the schools that have brought this on themselves in some of their decision making. They're eager to take that role over a little bit in some places. And, but nobody can do that as well as a parent can do that. And sometimes... We have to be careful not to think even as Christian parents, well, I've got the kiddos going to church on Sunday morning and on Sunday night, and I've got them going to the kids' club on Wednesday, and so all that's taken care of for me. And, and, and as wonderful a job as Pastor Mark does and the whole team that's uh, with him and, uh, and all of the, everybody that's volunteering and so many of you in this room, what we do and what we can do at our best is to come along and confirm the things that you're doing at home. Now, I will say that we endeavor to do things so well here by the grace of God that if the children aren't getting anything at home, uh, they could not only survive but actually flourish based upon if, if they just get here based upon what they're learning and, and how they're being pointed to the Lord. But it's important to realize this is my responsibility to establish the spirituality uh, of my children. That can't be passed on uh, to anyone else. Now notice in, in verse 7, he said, Not only shall you teach them diligently to your children, but you shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Now the other, that's talking about formal kind of education. This is informal education of, of our children and raising them up, up in, in the things of the Lord. And just talking about the things of the Lord at home, wherever we are, just in casual, normal conversation. 
where they say something, you say something, this says something, something happens over here, over here, news happens within the family, news happens in the world, some kind of a deal like this, and we talk it over as a family and we process it in the light of the Word of God. And that's something that's to occur. And it's reinforcing our children to process life in the light of, of the Word of God. And so we're to teach these things. You talk about, when you talk about stuff when you're sitting and you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you stand up, you're going to do a lot of repeating of, of yourself. Sometimes we can think, well, you know, I'm, I, here I am as a parent or a grandparent and I'm harping on the kids and I'm just saying the thing over and over and over again. They're going to hate me for it. And all. No, they need repetition. They need to hear it over and over again. Because the world has given them its message all day, every day, over and over again. It repeats itself. And we've got to come against that message in the same way, by speaking the word and, and uh, over and over again, reminding the kids uh, of these things and not worrying, are we being too spiritual? Are we being you know, too God-centered? I don't think it's a problem that we, we really need to worry about. You look at the kind of home that's described here, and it's a very, very spiritual home that Moses is calling them under the old covenant uh, into. So I think these are good things for us to remember as parents, and to remember as, as grandparents uh, too, uh, as we raise up our, our children. The, the world is not going to encourage them in the things of the Lord. We're going to need to do that. That message is not going to come uh, from, from someplace uh, else. And so just talking about the things of the Lord just as a natural part of our life. And then he says, you shall bind them, these commandments, as a sign on your hand, and then you shall, uh, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So, uh, the, so sometimes uh, we don't have a uh, large Orthodox Jewish community in Modesto, so sometimes it isn't until a person's like, um, on the flight from New York to Tel Aviv on an Israel trip or uh, from London uh, to Tel Aviv that a person will see an Orthodox Jew. And, and in the middle of the flight somewhere, you'll see an Orthodox Jew get up. He'll put on his prayer shawl. He'll find some kind of a private place there in the galley of the plane or something. And he'll put on what's called a phylactery. He'll put a little box with a leather strap around his, his arm. And a little box has scriptures on the inside. Put a little box here on his forehead. And he's got the... the uh, the, the leather straps that keep it attached to his forehead, and then he'll begin to bob like this and, and pray there on the plane because it's a time for prayer. And uh, if you ever ask and you say, how come they do this? At the, and also at the Western Wall in Israel, you'll see they're up there and they're doing this. And it's a reminder to them to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and all of your strength. So they're using their strength in the worship of God. Now, you can do that and be completely disengaged from God, but, but it, it, it's their little way of doing it. But they have the phylacteries, it's called. And part of the passages, they have this passage here from uh, Deuteronomy is typically in, inside the box, also from Deuteronomy 11, other passages, any kind of passages they want to put, put in it. Interesting thing about Jesus in his ministry, he never condemned the use of phylacteries by the Jews. So he never looked and said, what are you guys thinking? I mean, God didn't mean that literally, that you're to take and do that. And He never condemned them for it. We have no word that he ever did it, 
But he never condemned them for it. He did condemn them, the religious leaders, for making phylacteries bigger than everybody else's. <laughs> and the hems of their robes bigger than everybody else's. That he condemned uh, among them. But surely what's being communicated here, I mean, what is the hand? That's our doing in life. And it was just a reminder that our doing in life is to be directed and dominated by the Word of God. That's not a bad reminder. When you put it on the forehead, it's a reminder of the fact that my thinking is to be dominated by the Word of God. How I process life, how I see life, is to be dominated by the Word of God. So you see the place of the Word of God. I mean, it, how uh, you know, all-encompassing it is in, in the life, even of an Old Testament uh, uh, saint. And, and it's very beautiful. And then he said in, in verse 9, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So maybe you've seen, a, uh, uh, you have a Jewish neighbor, a Jewish friend, and you see the mezuzah that they've got right in the, kind of the door uh, frame of their house on the outside. And when they'll come in, they'll put their hand on it and they'll kiss it. And the Shema is, is, uh, is, is part of the scriptures that are inside behind that mezuzah. And basically what they're reminding themselves of is, all right, I am, I am leaving my house, which is dominated by the Word of God. And I am going out into a world for which... The Word of God is not the standard. And that recognition, that commitment, I want to live out there dominated by the Word. And then to come back home and, and to acknowledge, all right, I'm coming home and this is a sanctuary because of the Word of God. And, and so these little kind of physical reminders that they had. And I think it also speaks of the fact that like we've done all over the church. Anywhere you look around and you see artwork, what is it? It's all pictures of me. Well, you don't see, how depressing would that be? And then here I am on the... I heard that laugh. Now you look around, everywhere you see artwork of the different things around, all of it points to the Lord. All of it reminds us of something from His Word. It's all, every, and, he's, and He's basically saying, make sure your house does that. Make sure your house reinforces you spiritually. And, and, and when you read this related to the, the house and the Word of God and the whole thing, not only do you recognize that this is not only not a house that's filled with sin, but it, and this is not a house that is spiritually neutral, this is a house that is off the graph spiritual. I want that to search. I want it to search me tonight. I want it to search us tonight. Not enough to have a house where we look and even where we might even say, well, you know, we don't have anything we're not supposed to have in this house. But even that is enough. Our house, for the sake of our own children and for our own sake, needs to be something that is building us up spiritually because we're going to head out in that mess on a regular basis. I love this passage. 
talking about the word of God and the place that it should have in our lives. And so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not uh, fill, hewn out wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full. So here he talks about the fact that as they're, they're going into the promised land and they're going to become overnight wealthy. They're going to have property, land, wells, orchards, all of this kind of stuff. Instantly, they're going to be overnight prosperous. And, and that's one of the reasons for the emphasis on the Word of God is the Word of God that would help them to handle prosperity in a spiritual way. Prosperity, physical, material prosperity, it has, has tremendous challenges and dangers to it re- related to, to spirituality. And so that's why he, he, he's going to warn them uh, a little bit about it here. You're going to come in, you're going to be uh, instantly prosperous. Now, I think that uh, in general, when the average person becomes a Christian, no matter where they are in the whole wide world, uh, obedience to God's word ends up uh, producing relative prosperity. And, and one of the reasons it does is that once we come to know the Lord, how we see money and how we spend money changes overnight. I mean, Karen and I got saved, and, and I mean, here we are, we're saved, and and money is this, and we're not rich in any way like this, and then we hear about giving to God and the tithe, and where's that going to come from and all, and it ended, ended up being a problem. By the time I got done stopping, buying her mink coats, and taking her to Vegas every weekend, we had money like you couldn't believe. You know what I'm saying? But what does happen is he makes so many changes where we look and say, I don't really need this and I do need this and I don't really want to pour. We pour a lot of money into sinful things. And, and, and so it does lead to prosperity. And you don't take that like crazy like people do and say, well, if you live a godly life, it'll always translate that way. But in general, it does. I was in a, one time at, at the privilege of being in a visiting a slum ministry of GFA, a slum right outside of Bombay. It was more than a slum. It was a, it was a city that was built on a dump. And you just, it just went on as far... You couldn't see with the naked eye to the end of it. I don't know how many people were living in there. It's unbelievable conditions. They said, let, let me t- let, we want to introduce you to the Christians who lead Bible studies in this slum city, in this garbage dump thing that just come up out of the ground out of necessity and they take us to the houses or take us to in this they got you know cardboard and corrugated steel and some concrete and they're doing whatever they can you walk into it swept clean pictures on the wall look nothing like any of the other houses around god just brings a prosperity there's no uh, there's a prosperity that obedience brings and so that means you and I are going to have to get used to how, to how to successfully and properly handle prosperity so that we don't mishandle it and it takes us back into, into the things of the world. And so 
He said, listen, you're going to be prosperous. All these things are going to happen. You need to obey God when you get into the land. Then beware when you go in, verse 12, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And the specific danger that he talks about here is that God begins to bless us materially and then we forget the Lord And we forget that all this prosperity has come into my life because of his work in our lives. And we forget I wouldn't have anything apart from him. I used to be a slave back in Egypt, you know, broken, living in nothing and living in squalor and the whole thing apart from him. And and, and the problem is, is that when these blessings come into our life as we're just obeying God's word, it's just a byproduct of what, what happens so often, then we start to, we're prone to start to think that it's our wisdom and our strength that's gotten us all these things and we forget that he's the source of, of all those things. And so he warns them against it. And he said, In this position of prosperity, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall make oaths, uh, take oaths in his name. Protection, protection in times of prosperity. Number one, recognizing prosperity brings very great dangers if we're not careful uh, on, on handling it properly. But he says in verse 13, in essence, in prosperous times, that's a time to draw closer to God than ever. And what's the tendency? To drift on. Because we think, how hard can it be to handle prosperity? You just got to draw close to Him when things are hard. When things are good, that's easy. And God comes in and says, no, it isn't easy. I see a lot of people fall. Under the influence of prosperity, the Lord is kind of like instructing. So he says, fear the Lord. In other words, remember him. Acknowledge him as the reason for your prosperity. Don't take any of the glory to yourself. Yeah, isn't it, is this not the great Babylon that I have built, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar did? Number two, he says, as a protection, serve the Lord. Uh, in other words, that all this prosperity that the Lord brings to us, with our obedience to the Lord, that's not so that we can get caught up in the whole cycle of materialism of the culture, but that we would then use that money for the things of, of the Lord and, and, and to use that money as a thing that frees us up to do even more for Him. And then when He says, take oaths in His name, it, it means keep all that you have fully dedicated to the Lord. Keep reminding yourself and telling God, God, this is yours. All that I own is yours. I want, I'm telling you that, that Lord, not for my, your sake, but I'm telling you that for my sake. And you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. And so he said, when you experience this material prosperity, make sure that you, you don't allow it to draw you into idolatry, to draw you into materialism. One of the things that happens, and it's a danger, um, one of the things that happens is that when a person prospers materially, and the Lord is not opposed to, uh, to prospering us materially, is it, it, open, it can open up doors of opportunity related to temptation and sin that weren't there before. 
That's why I think God is careful to develop our character before he brings a certain level of prosperity into our life. I have a, a, a dear family member who I, I love so much, and he, he knows the Lord today. But he, he's, he is thankful the Lord that he didn't have a lot of money earlier in life or he'd be dead now. He's working in an in a IHOP and, and graveyard shift, minimum wage, you know, make, and, and, and he, he, took, he took all the drugs you could take on that wage. And if he had been making money like crazy, he'd be dead today. And he knows it. And, and so these, these things where prosperity opens up opportunities to sin, it opens up uh, access to sin that wasn't there previously. And you have to understand that uh, about uh, prosperity and to be on guard against us. It, it, it allows us to purchase things that we couldn't purchase before. It allows us to travel places that we couldn't travel before that might not be good for us. It gives us idle time and free time that we've never had before. And if we're not careful how we use it, then that very prosperity can, can be something that, that uh, gives us an opportunity to, to fail. David, you think of David in his 50s, which was an older man in those days. And when did he fail? He and failed sexually. Did he fail in his 20s or in his 30s? He failed when he started to become very prosperous and he had, uh, uh, he had the ability to make decisions that would give him a, an unhealthy amount of free time. And idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And he ended up getting into trouble. So we have to be very, very careful that these things, uh, prosperity, we don't allow it to pull us into sinful activities. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him at uh, Massa, which is recorded in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, where they, were, uh, they lacked water, remember, in the wilderness, and they started whining and complaining and quarreling. And sometimes God can prosper us, and instead of being these tough kind of soldiers for Christ, we become big, whiny babies. You know what I'm saying? So he said, you don't be doing that stuff. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, His testimonies and His statutes which He commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out uh, all of your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. And so don't fall into getting soft and whiny in the prosperity. And then in verse 20, he, uh, the third peril of, uh, 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 that they would face and the, the challenge of, of prosperity would be keeping their children spiritually minded when they're being raised in a material wealth that the parents hadn't been raised in. That's a real problem for parents who have... Uh, some financial resources or material resources. And they came from nothing and they realized, you know, coming from nothing and working uh, 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 to get, you know, uh, five cents of this or ten cents of that in order to earn this, that did something in my life and I don't want to rob my child of that experience. But we got this house and we got these cars and we got these things that even I could never dream of and this is going to be the norm for my children. How in the world am I going to keep them spiritual in the middle of this prosperity? 
I was watching, uh, I saw a thing where they had, um, oh, I was in a place I didn't have control of the television set. So it wasn't some kind of ungodly, terrible thing, but it was some, one of those daytime talk things. It might have been Oprah or something like that. And uh, I'm saying it scornfully, so I apologize. And no, no, I really don't. But, <laughs> but they had this thing on, and they're doing this thing on Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is, I'm next to Gates, is that he like the most power? How many billions of dollars is this guy worth? Would somebody pray him into this church, please? Would somebody <laughs> just teasing? Totally teasing. But Warren Buffett's kind of a funny guy. You look at him and go, man, he's, those, those look like $250 suits he's wearing. He's, he still brings his lunch to work every day in a bag. In a bag. He doesn't even eat at the cafeteria. So he, And they had some of his grandchildren, and it might have just been grandchildren, might have been great-grandchildren on the show, and you know they try and get into the private lives of these people and everything, and they ask the question. And basically they were making them out to be a miser. And they had this one granddaughter, and you know, she, she, all she wanted was, you know, grandpa to buy her a house, that's all. Something like that, you know. Corona Del Mar, or some kind of a thing like that, you know. And, and, every, and the most that she had ever gotten from him, hundred bucks. <laughs> I think you got to be a grandpa to like that. Hundred bucks. The guy's worth billions of dollars, and got a hundred bucks. And she's whining and sniveling on that show, and that probably didn't even enter into her mind that he saw this in her twenty years earlier. It would ruin her. But here's, here's somebody who recognizes, I can ruin people with this money. He's careful with it. And, and so here's the deal. What do you do when you've got this prosperity, but you, you don't want it to be something that stumbles the kids in their walk? He says, when your son asks you in time to come, in the middle of all this prosperity, saying, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes? and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son. And what the Lord is saying here is, when your children, this is very important, when your children ask you a question, take the time to answer it. Even if they're getting on your nerves. The inquisitiveness of a child the questions that they ask dad how come mom how come mom how come mom why mom why my mom that's a god-given thing and god is just like you got these birds with their mouths open like this and god is just giving us like the most obvious opportunity in the world to fill them with the things of god and a godly perspective and I know it's easy for me to say because my children are all grown now and, and the grandchildren are well on their way. But for those of you who are parents and you've got the little kiddos and the whippersnappers and the grandparents and all of that, answer every question they ask. 
but answer it from a godly perspective. They are in a co- they're being raised in a context you were not raised in. They are trying to figure this out, figure things out that you didn't have to try to figure out, and they're asking you about that, and you know more about it than they do, and answer every question they ask. Do not get irritated at them. Answer their questions, but use as an opportunity to build into their lives a godly perspective and then with the recognition that I want them to, again, navigate this prosperity in a spiritual way. So he says, you, 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 you answer their questions when they ask them. And you shall say to your son, verse 21, this is what you need to remind them of, we were slaves in Pharaoh, of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You say to your son and your daughter, where they ask any kind of a question or anything, how to help them navigate the prosperity that God has blessed you with, you remind them as often as necessary, I came from nothing. I came from bondage in Egypt. I came from as a slave of sin and my flesh. And the only reason I have two quarters to rub together, much less everything you see, is because God in His grace and His power pulled me out of that life. He saved me and He has given me all of this. It all comes from God. And it's all come by virtue of being obedient to Him. And little buckaroo, don't you ever forget that if you move from that obedience, this can disappear as fast as it appeared. And the kids need to know that. I have known more than one millionaire in Modesto, California, to lose it all. Because they forgot this. They thought over time... Am I not, you know, the great Nebuchadnezzar who has built this Babylon? And they forgot that God gave it to them in grace. God gave it to them as they were obeying, and and they learned very quickly that God can pull it away just as as quickly. It's funny, and I'm I'm just about over time. Uh, It doesn't mean I'm done, but it helps you to know that I'm... One of the great things about, and I am just about done... But one of the great things about that the Lord can do when, when, if, we, if we mishandle His blessings and they become idols in our life or we begin to use His material prosperity to bring wickedness into our home, uh, if we won't break our idols and destroy our idols and clean up our, our place on our own, God knows how to do it. <laughs> Why does that TV keep breaking? Why does that computer never work for me? That car I bought is the biggest piece of junk. And I can hardly get to Reno anymore in it. <laughs> A lot of gambling illustrations tonight, aren't there? But he knows how to reach in and say, All right, you're not going to use it the way that I've given it to be used. I know how to take all of it back. And I don't know how to start all over again with you. 
And, and so the whole idea is you remind these kids and how the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, all of his household, and he brought us up out from there that he, and that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to us. And the Lord commanded us to observe these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. And then it will be righteous for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Let's stand together and if the worship team come forward, that would be great.